Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this um, wonderful session of um, Word. Uh, my name is Brian Phillips, uh, and it's my privilege um, to share the next hour with um, Scotland's biggest bookseller, Sean Bithell. Uh, those of you who expected him to be over seven foot tall, I'm sorry. <laughs> what you see is what you get. Today, the format will be, Sean is going to start by, by reading a wee bit from the book to um, kind of set the scene. Um, we will then be chatting for uh, a, a while. Uh, and at the end of that, there'll be plenty of time for your questions, and I'm sure you all have lots of them. So without further ado, I shall introduce you to Sean, who will read. Well, thank you all for coming. It's a, an enormous surprise that anyone turned up at all, to be honest, but, um, <laughs> apart from Brian, who I knew was familiar. Um, so uh, I'm going to read a little extract, which is, um, I start every month with uh, a quotation from George Orwell, who used to work in a bookshop in London. Um, and in 1936, I think, he wrote an essay called Bookshop Memories, which basically is his, his, uh, his recollections of his time in a bookshop. And I thought it would be interesting to compare what it was like in 1936 to what it's like today. So this is why I start every month with a, a quotation from Orwell. So this is, the, uh, this is June, <clears throat> and this is Orwell. There are always plenty of not quite certifiable lunatics walking the streets, and they tend to gravitate towards bookshops, <clears throat> because a bookshop is one of the few places where you can hang about for a long time without spending any money. In the end, one gets to know these people almost at a glance, for all their big talk, there is something moth-eaten and aimless about them. And this is now my sort of reflection on that. Things have changed a little since Orwell's day. Perhaps the National Health Service has accommodated the not quite certifiable lunatics who dogged his daily life in the bookshop back then. Or perhaps they found some other equally frugal means of distracting themselves. We have one or two regular customers to whom this description might apply. But far more common today is the customer who will spend a few short minutes in the shop before leaving empty-handed, saying, you could spend all day in this shop. <laughs> <laughs> or the young couple who will find the most inconvenient place in, in which to park their vast screaming panzer of a pram while they sit exhausted in the armchairs by the wood-burning stoves. Nowadays, when customers have that aimless look about them, it's almost, certain, and it's almost a certainty that it's because they're waiting for a prescription from the pharmacist. <laughs> or for the garage in Wigtown to call and tell them that their car has passed its MOT test and they can collect it. So. Thanks. Okay. Um, have books always been part of your life? Did you grow up in a, in a house full of books? Um, oh, gosh, my parents would not like to hear me say this, but no, um, they're not great readers, either of them. Um, but I think I always have been fairly keen reader. I wouldn't say voracious, but I've, I've always enjoyed reading. Um, but the irony is, and I think a lot of booksellers will tell you this, uh, as soon as you become a bookseller, you, you just stop reading. You, know, you, just, you just think you spend all day surrounded by books, which is great. And then at the end of the day, when most people sort of sit down to read a book, you just think the last bloody thing I want to look at is another book. So, so how did you come to purchase Scotland's biggest bookshop? Uh, yeah, well... Um, I kind of made a conscious decision, which with hindsight was an extremely ill-advised one, um, in my early 20s to not pursue any kind of a career. I, I don't know what possessed me to kind of make that my, my 
almost a career choice of its own. So uh, I kind of got to the age of 30 and I'd just done a decade of really rubbish jobs from uh, working in gas pipeline construction to temping at universities. And, um, and I, I was visiting my parents who lived just outside Wigtown and uh, at Christmas one year and I thought, well, I'll just go and see John who owns the secondhand bookshop. Uh, and I'd, you know, I'd known John for about 20 years. Uh, and I popped in and I was chatting away to him and he, he asked me what I was doing and I told him it was, I was sort of pretty much at a loose end. Uh, and he said, well, I want to retire, so why don't you buy my shop? Uh, and so I said, John, I've got no money. He said, I oh, don't need to worry about that. That's what banks are for. Um, <laughs> so uh, I went to see the bank manager who thankfully was in a particularly good mood or possibly drunk. and. Um, <laughs> He agreed to lend me the money, um, and it, it was been downhill since then. <laughs> so, so how much did you know about book selling when you started? I knew absolutely nothing about book selling, uh, and I knew nothing about running a business. And uh, 17 years later, I still know nothing about book selling or running a business. But um, yeah, I think uh, it, it's interesting because John and all the, the sort of pre-internet generation of booksellers uh, are. A, I, th I think things are so different back then because they had to carry, if you know, if you go out buying, which is the, the sort of most important part of the job, they had to have all the information about book values and, um, you know, your condition addition, all the all the sort of critical things about buying books. So when they were out buying, they could they could just look at something and know immediately what it was worth. But that's all changed now. Um, because the internet has just made the market so volatile that when you're buying, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a gamble, really, unless it's a subject you really know a lot about. Um, but my shop's a general bookshop, so and I remember when I, when I bought the shop, uh, John said to me, John was great, he sort of took me under his wing and made sure he came on the first few book deals I did, and um, he gave me lots of really good advice. Uh, and he said, if you're, if you're a general bookseller, after 20 years of doing it, you can talk for five minutes on any subject, but just five minutes, that's it. <laughs> um, and, and he's kind of right, you know, you do, you do acquire a lot of, a lot of knowledge, um, not just about books and values, but about authors and you know, the histories of things. And um, so there's a, and most of my, the knowledge that I've acquired over that time hasn't been from me consciously you know, going out and gathering it. You learn it because customers tell you things, and 99% of the time you just don't want to hear it, but um, occasionally you do. Um, and there's, there's one example that I, I had a, a two-volume book called The Antiquities of Scotland by a guy called Francis Gross, who was a, a draftsman, and um, he was, was sort of second half of the 18th century he decided to do a tour of Scotland and um, just go around all the sort of ruined churches and castles and things and sketch them and do a little bit of a, a story about them. Uh, and a customer came in and bought this two-volume set. It's, I think it was £300. And after he'd safely tucked them under his arm, he said, I'll tell you why I'm buying this. And normally my heart sinks when people say it because I just don't care. Um, uh, uh, and so he, he decided to tell me that um, the reason that he, he was interested in that book was because it was 
the first ever time um, Robert Burns' poem, Tam appeared in print. Uh, and the reason why was that um, Gross had met Burns uh, at a, a farm in Dumfriesshire and explained to Burns, they got on very well. Obviously, they were both big drinkers. Um, and uh, Burns, Gross had explained that this was his project. And Burns said, oh, you've got to go to Alloway Kirk in Ayrshire, which is where Burns is from. So he's obviously trying to promote his birthplace and, and get Gross to include it. And Gross said, that's fine, I'll go and do that. But you have to write some, you have to write something to accompany my illustration. And uh, so Burns went away and wrote something about witchcraft and sent it to Gross. And Gross sent it back to him and said, this is absolutely rubbish, you can do better than that. And so Burns sat down and wrote Tamashanta, which is possibly his best poem. Uh, and that's why that, that book has, is of interest uh, to Burns collectors. So if I'd read that in a book, I'd have probably forgotten it immediately. But because this customer was so enthusiastic in telling me about it, um, yeah, I, I, I remember things like that. The Diary of a Bookseller remains my favorite book uh, of this year. Um, how did this come about? Uh, yeah, it came about essentially um, because everybody who's ever worked in the shop, has, I, I don't know if anyone here has worked in a bookshop, but they are quite odd places to work. You do, as um, Orwell says, it does seem to attract the kind of strangest people. Um, and everybody who'd worked in the shop uh, had commented that there's so many weird things happen and, and you meet so many odd characters. Uh, that really there's a, we could write a book about it. Um, and then in 2012, I don't know if anyone knows Jen Campbell's book, Weird Things Customers Say in Bookshops. That came out and I just thought, oh God, that's it. She's done it and I haven't. And then, so Jessica, who was my partner at the time said, I mean, you can still do it. Um, but she identified the fact that I've got an absolutely appalling memory. So she said, just keep a diary and every day just write down what's happened and then you can go back to it and use it as, a, as an aid memoir for something in the future. Uh, and so I just started writing, that, writing it down and it was literally like skeletal um, staccato, you know, it was customer drops, book on foot, bends down, farts. Um, <laughs> uh, so, it was, it was pretty basic, so after a year, I didn't know what to do with it, so I sent it to a literary agent, and um, she basically said, yeah, it, it, needs, it needs a bit more um, writing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, she sent it back to me with some notes, and uh, I, so I rewrote it several times, and eventually it's... It, it, I never set out for it to be a, a diary, but it just seemed to sort of naturally gravitate towards that format. Not a lot of people know this, but this is not the first book that you are responsible for. I have a little book here that's <clears throat> which is called Tripe Advisor. <laughs> uh, Misadventures in the Bookshop, Wigtown. Oh, incidentally, are we Wigton or are we Wigtown? Either, either is correct. I think if you're a very local local, it's Wigton. Um, but if you're not, it's Wigtown and... Either is acceptable. Locals don't take umbrage if you say Wigtown, and um, equally, 
yeah, I think people are pretty laid back about it. Because there is a wig town, I think, in the north of England, isn't there? There's Wigton in Cumbria, which has Wigton, yeah, yeah, which yeah. has caused all sorts of problems during yes. the book festival. <laughs> people ending up 200 miles away in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to TripAdvisor. Um, tell us a little bit about this, and, and I've, I've marked a couple of things that I'd love you to read, if you don't mind, because they, uh, they did entertain me. Um, <clears throat> well, my, my sister, a few years ago, uh, sent me an email uh, and said, have you ever checked to see if the shop is on TripAdvisor? And I just thought naively that TripAdvisor was really just for sort of B&Bs and restaurants. Um, so I, I went on to TripAdvisor and I had a look uh, and there were, I think there were nine reviews and three of them were for a different bookshop in the town um, that serves, uh, serves food. Um, and uh, what one of them actually said that was actually about my shop. So they just identified the wrong shop and given, given me a review that was actually supposed to be for a different shop, which was fine because they're much better reviews than I would have got otherwise. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so one of, the, one of the genuine reviews complained that uh, the shop wasn't nearly as big as they'd hoped it would be. I thought, oh, come on, <laughs> really, I'll just make it a bit bigger for your next trip. Um, so uh, I basically wrote my own fake TripAdvisor review uh, talking about how wonderfully fragrant and clever the owner is. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just massively over the top. And then I, I got a stinking email from TripAdvisor who said they'd taken it down and uh, I'd better not do it again, naughty boy. Um, so I went on Facebook and uh, explained what had happened and said to the Facebook the shop's Facebook followers, uh, if anybody wants to write their own fake uh, review on TripAdvisor, go for it. And there were so many that we ended up publishing a little book of them. Um, so these are the two that Brian selected. So this one it is titled Books Don't Look New. Five out of five, reviewed by Macduff Dave on the 27th of February 2014. This might be the biggest bookshop in the whole of Wigtown. It has lots of books, but they did not look new to me. They've, they've probably had them for a long time. <laughs> We had been warned by some Australians that they ridicule their customers and make them have their pictures taken. But, but whilst I found the staff here a bit odd, they just ignored us. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the fact that the books lay horizontally as this made it easier to read the titles. The lady appeared to enjoy arranging the shelves. I, I'd been mistaken for a woman by several <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, six foot two. Uh, um, but because when you come in, into the shop, uh, I quite often, if I'm on the computer, all you can see is the back of my head and I'm sitting down and it's usually old ladies who say, well, let's ask the nice old, the nice lady if she can help us <laughs> stand up. And, oh, we are not a lady. Um, the lady appeared to enjoy arranging the shelves. There was a man who just sat at a computer. He had a keen interest in South American rivers, uh, but he might have been a customer as he did not do anything but mutter. Um, it's a great place to go if it's cold or wet outside. The children's meals are great value, and they don't seem to <laughs> and they don't seem to mind if they run around and make a mess. Um, uh, and so this next one is titled "I Hate Books." Uh, five out of five, reviewed by Carol B on March the first, twenty fourteen. I was advised that there was a hunky young male bookshop owner in the bookshop in Waytown. I couldn't find him anywhere. 
Honestly, I spent ages looking around the corners of bookshelves, walking past miles of shelving, and nope, no one. I spotted a curly-haired ginger lady at the computer. <laughs> but she didn't turn around or acknowledge me, so I didn't even bother to ask. There were loads of books. I hate books. What a waste of a trip. Next time, I'll buy Torso of the Week for my hunky man fix. <laughs> Uh, and um, if you want a copy of that, Sean still has some at the Booktown in, uh, Bookshop in Wigton. Um, speaking of, of buying books, we will at the end talk about signed copies, but I do want to reiterate, if you haven't yet got a copy or if you'd like another copy uh, as a gift, um, they are on like. sale <laughs> at the bookshop and Sean will be available for signing. Let's come back to um, this wonderful book. How many people have you offended amongst those you featured in the book? Uh, not enough. Um, <laughs> uh, I, yes, I, I think there's most of the people who I've written about. Um, well, first of all, I, I haven't. I've made a point of trying not to be judgmental, so I just describe people's behaviour. Uh, so, in a sense, I think if people are rude, then tough. You know, just don't be rude, um, and you won't make it into the book. But um, in a way, that's sort of something that has come up recently is um, before I started writing the book, if somebody came in and said something rude or offensive or whatever, I just get really annoyed. And I think most people who work in any kind of service industry, you're, you, although you get used to being treated like a second class citizen by some people, it's always great. And you never, you know, it's, it's never something you particularly enjoy. Um, most people are fine. Uh, I have to say 90% of customers are, are great. Um, but you do remember the ones who aren't. They're, they're the ones that really stick in your mind. And at the end of each day, I'd be furious that somebody had been so rude. Um, and then I started writing the book. And I just got a bit disappointed if people weren't rude. So um, <laughs> it's now got to the point where you know someone's buying a book and they're you know, being polite and friendly. I'm going, come on, say something stupid. Um, <laughs> They need material. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think, I, I don't think anybody has been offended, apart, apart from one customer. Um, it would be Bumbag Dave. It would be Bumbag Dave. So, um, Bumbag Dave is, he's quite a big guy, he's got his big bushy beard, and he's always got um, a bum bag around here, it's kind of strapped across his chest, one across his waist, and another one sort of round his neck, kind of casually off his shoulder. Um, <laughs> And uh, he's quite an annoying character, although I'm quite fond of him because he, he always buys books. He's an aviation collector. Um, so he never leaves empty-handed, uh, or at least he never did until he appeared in the book, <laughs> after which he's, he's um, boycotted the shop. Um, but he's always got... Uh, he must have about three or four mo mobile phones, and they're always bleeping, and he's got about six digital watches. In fact, he kind of fits Orwell's description of the 1936 customer pretty well as a nearly certifiable lunatic. Um, but yeah, Bumbag Dave's taken exception, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, nobody else has. And I do sometimes, if, if I think someone's going to recognize themselves, I will uh, sort of maybe change characteristics like about what they're wearing or um, what day of the week they came in. Uh, but really, I, I kind of don't don't really see the point. I think if, if people are going to behave in that sort of way, then it's fair game. In they go.
Um, my favorite um, individual in the book, and I'm sure this will be uh, true of many of you, uh, was Nicky. Of course. Oh. And, and for those who um, probably recognize Nikki, she was the lead character in the video. Um, and um, if you haven't yet read the book, um, well, we'll get Sean to tell you a little bit about Nikki. Yeah, Nikki is um, a very interesting character. She's, uh, she's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and uh, she and I have sort of diametrically opposed views about religion. Um, but she generally doesn't bring it to work. Uh, but occasionally she does, and it usually manifests itself in quite a subtle form. So uh, if we're putting books out on the shelves uh, and Nikki comes across a copy of uh, Darwin's On the Origin of Species, it goes into the fiction section. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, wa I was once tidying up the fiction section, and I found about eight of them in a row, all different editions. Um, so I put them back in the, the right section. And then um, I, I don't tend to buy Bibles uh, when I'm buying books, because not for any particular reason other than they just don't sell, uh, unless they're, they're particularly old. Or like the, the, there are some scarce editions of the Bible that people do collect, like the Breacher's Bible, where um, it's known as the Breacher's Bible because uh, in it, instead of the fig leaf, um, it says something like, Adam put on a pair of breeches. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's a very collectible Bible. And there, there are some others. There's a Kincaid Bible and things. So I do have some antiquarian Bibles, but I don't buy you know, modern, cheap Bibles. But Nikki does. Um, and she'll put them in the theology section. So when she's not looking, I, I sneak them into the fiction section. And, and sort of um, so there's this constant rivalry going on. Um, I, I was I, there was something I was reading earlier, but I know I won't be able to find it now. But she, uh, she, every time I ask her to do anything, she just kind of nods politely and says, yeah, that's fine. And I go away and I come back and she's done something completely different. Uh, but she, she always had the best interests of the shop at heart. So despite our disagreements, um, I, I knew she was, we were both aiming for the same thing, which was for the, the good of the shop. Uh, but in, the shop gets really cold in winter because in another ill-advised um, decision, I decided to take all the, the internal doors off on the ground floor because I noticed when people came into the shop when I bought it, if, as soon as they got to a door, even though there were more books and you could see it was all lit up and shelved, they didn't really want to open it and go through. I think people are nervous that they're going to get told off. So I just thought it much easier to just take all the doors off. Um, but the obvious consequence that it's absolutely bloody freezing in the winter and the wind just whistles straight through it. So um, Nikki uh, decided to, the best way to deal with this was to um, go to the charity shop and she goes, well, you saw it actually, it's a big black ski suit. Um, uh, it looks like more like she works in the sort of cold store of an abattoir than in a <laughs> workshop. Um, but yeah, it obviously kept her warm all through the winter. Um, and I, I seem to recall she, she fed you rather well on Fridays. Uh, rather well would be one way of put, putting it. Um, so her uh, Jehovah's Witness meetings uh, are on Thursday nights at, at Kingdom Hall in, in Stranraer. And Stranraer is about 20 miles from Wigton. And um, Thursday night is obviously the night when Morrison's, the lo local supermarket, takes everything that has, is now unsellable and puts it in a sort of dumpster thing. Um, which is like 
heaven for Nikki. Um, so after after her Kingdom Hall meeting, she just goes straight to the, the dumpster and just picks out all sorts of things um, and brings them into the shop and calls it Foodie Friday. And I, I've yet to be able to identify a single one of the things that she's brought in as what it's meant to be. So once she came in with um, with a load of eclairs and chocolate eclairs and uh, sort of presented me with a like a sort of plastic tray of them and said, yeah, Foodie Friday, have one of these. And so I reached out and I grabbed one and she said, don't take that one. I licked the chocolate off it in the van on the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Foodie Friday became some, something, some sort of torment. Half the, things, half the things she brought in looked like they'd been fished out of the kind of human body part recycling of a hospital. Um, but, no, uh, sorry. Foodie Friday is, of course, no more because Nikki is no longer with you. Where, where, where has she gone? Nikki has uh, taken a, a job much better, in her opinion, um, chopping down trees in a forest up behind Glen Luce, which is about 10 miles away. Uh, and that's really, although she, she clearly loved working in the bookshop and she's a, she's a great reader, she's a very, very well read. Um, but she's a real sort of nature girl. She likes being outside and. Um, and she loves her chainsaw, so um, that's that's Nikki's idea of heaven. I'm assuming she didn't ask you for a reference when she left, because you're, you're renowned for your references. So, uh, she, uh, she didn't ask me for a reference, um, but I would have given her a glowing reference, yeah. to be fair. Um, you, you have the book features one of the great references of all time, and I wonder if you might, might read it to us. I Those of you who have read the book will remember this with great affection. Those who haven't, pray you never get a reference like this. <laughs> Uh, so when I when I bought the shop, um, John, the previous owner, used to employ uh, local, usually girls from the local high school, uh, to work Saturdays um, because the, the full time staff didn't like working Saturdays, liked having the weekend off. Um, so I uh, I just carried on this policy, uh, and I took on this girl called Sarah Pierce. And when she started working in the shop, uh, she was she was quite deferential and um, I thought, oh God, you know, you're a teenager, you're supposed to be kind of rebelling a bit. So I encouraged her to be, to be a bit less deferential and a, a bit more sort of anarchic. And uh, sadly, I kind of encouraged her far too much and it went way in the wrong direction. Um, so she left eventually and she asked for a reference for another job. Uh, so I thought, I'm going to write a genuine reference of what she's actually like. So this is for Sarah. To whom it may concern, reference for Sarah Pierce. Sarah worked Saturdays at the bookshop, 17 North Main Street, Wigton, for three years while she was at the Douglas Hewitt High School. When I say worked, I use the word in its loosest possible terms. She spent the entire day either standing outside the shop, smoking and snarling at people trying to enter the building, or watching repeats of Hollyoaks on 4OD. Although she was regularly punctual, she often arrived either drunk or severely hungover. <laughs> she was usually rude and aggressive. She rarely did as she was told, and never in the entire three years of her time here did anything constructive without having to be told to do so. She invariably left a trail of rubbish behind her, usually consisting of iron brew bottles, crisp packets, chocolate wrappers, and cigarette packets. She consistently stole lighters and matches from the business and was offensive and frequently violent towards me. <laughs> she was a valued member of staff, and I have no hesitation in <laughs> recommending her. 
So, yes, Sarah and I are still friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some um, unique things in uh, your bookshop, uh, one of which is the bookshop bed. How did this come about? Uh, that was really, I mean, I quite like sort of doing guerrilla marketing things. Um, and there's a, a bookshop in, I think it's on the West Bank in Paris. Um, so, yeah, it's West Bank. Am I confusing this with the Middle East? Um, uh, <laughs> South Bank. Left Bank. Left Bank. Um, <laughs> uh, it's called Shakespeare and Company. Uh, and it's, it's sort of legendary in the, in the world of secondhand bookshops as being this an amazing institution. Um, and one of the thing, things they do there is if they let people stay there, so they have kind of beds in little, tucked away in little corners throughout the shop, and people can come and work there, and in exchange for working for a day, they, they can have a bed for the night. And so I thought I'd do, I'd put a bed in the bookshop as a, a sort of nod to Shakespeare and company. Can you explain geographically in the shop exactly where it is? Uh, it's more or less right in the middle of the shop. So you come in the front door, you've, well, you've seen the shop, but you've seen it sort of back to front. So you come in the front door, there's, the, there's a room there, then there's a staircase, and then there's a big room, which I'm, I think when it was a house, because originally in the 1830s, it was, it was built as a, a sort of formal townhouse. It, it must have been some kind of a sitting room. Um, so it's in that room there, and it's a sort of mezzanine. Uh, and... Initially, I thought I'm going to lose some shelf space by building this bed. Um, but actually, I, I've noticed that really customers rarely look much above eye level uh, and very few look below knee level. So most of my dead stock just sits there. All the stock that moves is in, the, in that sort of middle range. But I, I try and do something every year that um, I, I love the idea of guerrilla marketing, guerrilla publicity. So I try and do something every year that customers will come into the shop, even regular customers will come in and, and go, wow, there's something different. Um, so the first, I think the first thing we did was um, I managed to get a, a sort of full-size skeleton, human skeleton off eBay. So that's suspended from the ceiling in one of the rooms playing a violin. Well, I thought that was an old customer who disagreed <laughs> with that. <laughs> The best thing about it is that there was one day I was walking through the shop uh, just putting books out and there was uh, like a girl about probably about four staring at it, kind of open mouth. And um, her mother ran up to her and said, don't look at it again. Um, and she, the mother looked at me and said, last time she came in here, she had nightmares for months after looking at it. <laughs> Brilliant. Job done. <laughs> um, um, and then there's the sort of miniature railway that no one gets to see. Yeah. Uh, so um, we've renovated a, a lot of the shop, uh, and there's a, a room that's just full of books about railways. Uh, and the floor, I noticed, was really springy. And John, the previous owner, John's, John's classic for wallpapering over the cracks. So um, the floor was obviously rotten. So John just put a carpet over it and just hoped that nobody would notice. Um, but Nori, my first employee, and I decided uh, Nori was a brilliant handyman. So he said, Come on, we'll fix this. Uh, so we closed the room off, ripped the carpet up, took the floor out, which was completely rotten. And we found this hole in the ground underneath the floor um, that was full of rubble. But it was obviously meant to be there. It was a kind of neat cube that obviously had you know, dressed stone all around it. So we cleared it out. 
and I still don't know what it was. Uh, I, I suspect because there was a, a lot of smuggling in the area that it was a, a brandy hole. So it was somewhere where you, the, you'd get your smuggled brandy, stick it there, put the trap door over and put a rug over it. And when the customs man came to inspect, they wouldn't find it. So we cleared it out and I got someone to build a model railway under the floor. And it's, it's brilliant. It's supposed to be Wigtown, but the guy got a bit carried away and he's got like wicker men and things like that. There's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Um, but I haven't been able to afford to get a piece of toughened glass to go over it. Um, so hopefully now I'll be able to, uh, and um, people will be able to see. The only problem with it, I mean, it's really good and it's lit. So hopefully when you go into that room now, there'll be this piece of glass and you'll be able to see this model railway. But the guy who built the, the model railway, uh, it was a bit of a stoner. And every time it goes around a corner, it just derails. So, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know quite how I'm going to fix it. Um, so every five minutes, lift the thing off, put the thing back in. <laughs> um, and, and right by the front door of the shop, there's a Kindle. Yes. Uh, um, I'm not a huge fan of Kindles. Uh, and I don't think many booksellers are. Uh, um, I, but having said that, I don't think they have eaten too much into the sales of real books, because I think a lot of people who buy books on Kindle if they like the book, will then go on to buy the real book. And I think there are also a lot of people who buy books on Kindle who probably wouldn't buy the book in the first place. So um, have, having said that, it represents Amazon. And Amazon something I really, really don't like. Um, so I, I thought uh, I'd buy a damaged Kindle and do a fake Kindle tutorial um, on you know, how to repair, repair a damaged Kindle. Uh, so I kind of dressed up, looked quite smart, and got the cameras and set it up, mic myself up. And this Kindle's got a frozen screen. It's, you, know, you can see it's got half of a Virginia Woolf novel. You can't see the bottom half, so I'm going to show you how to fix it uh, using this uh, revolutionary piece of technology. So I then took it down to my parents' house and got my father's 12-bore and, and blew it to pieces. <laughs> um, so which is the most enormously satisfying thing I've done in the last. And I filmed it in slow motion, so you can just see everything just. Um, so uh, I then I made a little wooden mount like you would for a, a stag's head and screwed it onto that and got a little plaque from the engravers saying Amazon Kindle shot by Sean Biffle on the 25th of July. Um, and it it's hang, hangs in the, the front room of the shop. Um, and it's by far the most photographed thing in the shop. It's great. Uh, so it's, it's generated a lot of publicity. Well, I, what I particularly liked in, in, in the video is at the end of it, Sean says, uh, well, if you haven't been able to finish reading this on your Kindle, here's how you can finish reading it. And he's reading a book, which yeah. I thought was a real good idea. Now, I believe also Kindle Fire, you've worked on how to um, yeah. repair Kindle um, Fire. You can, yeah. you can convert. Again, I did this as a, a, as a spoof um, Kindle tutorial for, for YouTube. Um, how to convert an ordinary Kindle into a Kindle Fire. Um, and the easiest way to do this is to take it into the garden um, and pour half a gallon of petrol on it and throw a match on it. And there you go, Kindle Fire. <laughs> Very satisfying. <laughs> and again, enormously rewarding. So. Now, obviously, uh, as a bookseller, you are doing a lot of buying and selling. What's more fun, the buying bit or the selling bit? Oh, God, the buying bit, by far. Um, the selling bit's okay. 
um, it's always nice to be able to take money off people. For, um, but uh, yeah, you you do you don't have this because you don't have a shop. But um, anybody who works in a bookshop, one of the things that I frequently encounter is uh, you know, someone will come into the shop looking for a book, um, and you know, I, if I've got it, that's fine. If I haven't, which is ninety percent of the time, I have to explain no, sorry, I don't have it. And then they start telling you why they want it. I'm just thinking, I don't care. I really don't care. Um, I don't have the book. I don't care if your grandfather wrote it. It's, it's, um, I'm not getting a sale out of this. So, um, but yeah, buying is buying is brilliant. It's, it's the uh, the sort of hunter gatherer instinct. I think kicks in. Yeah, because you you go to a house and you have no idea what's going to be inside. And there's usually something, there's nearly always something that you haven't seen. And I think in the 17 years that I've been, when, when customers bring books into the shop, usually I only want about a third of them, but quite often they, they just want rid of the whole lot. So I have to, um, have to dispose of them. Uh, but the, um, yeah, buying's the most exciting thing. And I, I think over the past 17 years, I've probably handled around about a million books. Um, not, I haven't bought that many or sold that many, uh, but I've, I've handled about a million. Um, and yeah, the, the thing about buying is that you, you can kind of, you can go up to a castle or a big stately home and think, gosh, there's gonna be some great stuff in here. And it can just be complete rubbish. And you can go up to a kind of small bungalow in the middle of nowhere and think, oh, it's going to be rubbish, and it's brilliant. So you pretty soon shelve your preconceptions about what's going to, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I've, I've done a few trips where I've uh, just found what I've thought was absolute rubbish, and then there's just one book, and one of those was um, was a house in Ayrshire, and it was it was a nice house, but the books were... They were dreadful, um, all in bad condition, nothing interesting. And then as I was leaving, I saw this large book, um, thin, but you know, folio, elephant folio size, propped up against a, a table. And I said, come on, can I have a look at that? And it was, um, I opened it up and it was beautiful copper plate, hand-colored engravings of, uh, of orchids. Uh, and it was an extract from a, a book written in, I think it was published in about 1800 by a guy called Robert Thornton called Temple of Flora. And he just basically sketched or illustrated flowers. Um, and it's it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, so I knew I couldn't afford to buy it. I knew it was gonna be worth a lot of money. So I took it away and I put it into auction and I took a really small commission and I think it made 8,000 pounds, but it was just beautiful. And so you have to, you're constantly, I remember again, going back to John, who I bought the shop from, um, saying, you've got to go through literally everything because you might be going through a box of Reader's Digests and think this is all rubbish and not bother with, not bother getting to the bottom of the box, but there at the bottom of the box is a first edition Ian Fleming. So you've literally got to go through everything. Um, but yeah, so debt without question, buying is the most exciting part of the job. Now, um, Wigton is Scotland's book town. And perhaps you could explain to our gathering what the population of Wigton is and how many bookshops there are. Uh, well, Wigton is a population, has a population of about 900. Um, and oddly enough, I was looking at, at some 
I can't remember why I was looking at statistics for uh, population per hectare in the UK uh, over the past 200 years. And um, if you look at the UK average, it's gone from something like two people per hectare to six. So it's quite a, a steady climb. But if you look at the population of Galloway, <coughs> it's just a flat line. The population has stayed exactly the same for 200 years. Um, so, yeah, Wigtown has a very static population. Um, and we became Scotland's book town 20 years ago, actually, this year. Uh, and it's, it was, the town was pretty run down. I, I've just been to Featherston, um, which is New Zealand's book town. Uh, and it just reminded me so much of, of Wigton 20 years ago, because it, it, like Wigton, it's had, Wigton used to have a creamery, which employed 150 people, and a distillery, which employed about another 40 or 50. And they both closed down within 10 years of each other. So essentially, you've got probably half of the working population of the town in that small window rendered unemployed. So you just have this huge economic crash. Uh, and all the shops that, you know, Ironmonger, shoe shop, uh, everything basically closed down straight away. Um, and I, I can see that that's happened to Featherston as well. But slowly, bookshops have sort of populated it. And they, we, they have brought economic regeneration. It's been a, a very positive thing for the town. Um, so hopefully it'll do the same for Featherston because I think it has, it has the potential. I think the, the important criteria for a book town to succeed is that it has to be sort of not quite on its knees financially, but there have to be opportunities for people to move into cheap property and take a risk and open a bookshop. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. Um, I think doing it in, a, in a, an already wealthy town is a, a, mis a mistake. I think Featherstone's the perfect place for, for a book town. There's quite a variety of uh, bookshops in, in the town. The open book is the one that fascinates me most. Um, do you want to tell us a wee bit about it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody here knows about it or has even done the open book, but um, when Jessica, my partner at the time, uh, she used to work for NASA and she had wrote to me out of the blue and said that she'd always had this dream of working in a, book a bookshop in Scotland near the sea and could she come and volunteer and help in, in the shop? And uh, she came over and, and she stayed. And then about two years ago, there was a, a shop in the town that was for sale, uh, a bookshop that was for sale. And she, with incredible foresight or insight, I'm not quite sure which, thought that this would make a great Airbnb. So if we converted the upstairs of the, it was a two-story building, if we converted the upstairs into an apartment, um, we could rent it out and uh, get people to come and run a bookshop for a week pay and come and run a bookshop for a week because she thought well if I had that dream of running a bookshop surely there must be other people out there with that same dream um, and it's been booked solid since since we did it so it's booked up until 2024 um, <laughs> and I, I honestly anybody in self-catering anywhere in the world would give their eye teeth for that kind of booking um, so it's been great for the town because it's brought people from all over the world uh, and it's, it's generated so much publicity uh, that it's, 
I, I remember when she came up with the idea, I was thinking, oh God, this is another one of your harebrained schemes that's going to go nowhere, but it's been a roaring success. Right. And talking of, Jessica was the other uh, woman in the, in the video, uh, and she wrote a memoir called Three Things You Need to Know About Rockets, which is all about him. Although <laughs> he appears in the book as Ewan. And um, why are you Ewan, Sean? Uh, I don't really know. Jessica decided at the time to uh, give people, n not not put people's real names in. And so she asked me what I would be called if I wasn't Sean. And I said, well, the Scottish version of Sean is Ewan. Um, yeah, so, uh, so my friend Steve is Callum. And actually, I continued the, uh, I used all the names that she gave for people in her book in mine. So my friend Steve is called Callum. People keep asking me why I've done that. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just because those are the names that Jessica used, and I thought, because they're both set in Wigton, it would be a good continuation. Right. And of continuation, we're going to move to questions in a minute, but I guess I do have to ask the question, is there going to be a volume two? Hopefully, yes. It's written, um, and uh, my publishers have decided they, they want it. Um, I'm not quite sure when it's going to come out, but... I would imagine prob probably about this time next year. So it's going to have to go through the excruciatingly painful editing process again. But um, yeah, to be honest, it's just the same as the first one. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, James Herriot got away with that for years. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I was amazed the publisher went for it, but anyway. Um, anyway, folks, uh, it's your turn now um, to ask whatever questions you'd like of Sean now. People at the top of both rows who have got microphones, can you please wait until a microphone arrives at wherever you are um, before asking your question? But you may now put your hands up. This always happens. Come on, come on. <laughs> don't, be, don't be shy. Nobody got any question. Oh, there's man there got a question. This man has flown 14 down, whatever it is, to be here. Oh, there's two at the same time. Yeah. No, no, I've worked in a bookshop and I can tell you people are strange. <laughs> <laughs> the, the weirdest thing is they'd be buying a book for somebody else and you'd ask, well, what are they like? And they wouldn't have a clue. I remember one guy who's buying it for his daughter and we asked, what age? Oh, I think she's eight, perhaps 11. <laughs> anyway, that's not my question. When you started out buying secondhand books, what was the... Um, category of books that you found most surprising that you that you found were more valuable than you thought that people were more interested in because you always think it's you know it's the first editions or something but there must be some categories that you just think people really want these yeah I think I think every subject has valuable books in amongst it so it, there's there's no particular subject that that I would, well, obviously antiquarian is, is usually going to be where the most money is. But I, I tend to read contemporary fiction and I made the mistake of assuming that everybody else in the country would want to read contemporary fiction as well. But actually, it's, it accounts for a very small part of our sales. And the one thing that did surprise me in answer to your question is that um, my best-selling subject is railways trains and it's always to men um, and 90% of them have got beards so, <laughs> um, but yeah my, my best-selling subject is railways uh, and that completely took me by surprise any further questions somebody I've got the microphone. 
microphone here. Um, I'm interested, uh, if you could just summarize what the difference is between, um, say, a day um, in the life of your bookshop now, since the publication of your book, and presumably the publicity that's been generated by it, and say, you know, um, 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, well, I think um, 10 years ago, 10 years ago was the credit crunch. So things were pretty disastrous then. Um, but uh, in fact, I was talking to someone from um, is it RTBs in Wellington, um, and they, they expanded their bookshop just before the credit crunch and then the credit crunch hit and they immediately had to contract again. So um, yeah, I think certainly when I started the shop, I didn't spend that much time in front of the computer listing books. But now, either me or whoever's working in the shop spends most of their time sitting in front of the computer listing books. And it's not fun. It's not, it's much more fun just randomly pricing books up and putting them out. Now you have to try and squeeze every last penny out of every book because uh, things are so tight. But yes, yeah, since, since my book came out, um, I have noticed an increase in footfall uh, and people do say that they've come to the shop because they've read the book. Um, so yeah, I, I, I suppose in that respect, it's busier certainly than it was, but I think there could be all, all manner of reasons for that. But I, hopefully it's part, in part because of the book. There's a couple of people in Wigtown that for whatever reason, in fact, there could be any number of reasons, don't particularly like me, but they have, um, they have businesses in the town and, uh, and I, I know that they're grudgingly having to admit that their businesses are doing slightly better because of my book. They haven't said anything to me and I know they never will, but um, yeah, I've heard it through the grapevine. Oh, no, you, you dislike Amazon. Deeply. <laughs> Can you explain how that's affected the book trade, please? Yeah, certainly. Um, so again, back in 2001, when I bought the shop, Amazon was only selling new books. They hadn't got around to selling secondhand books. And I can't remember when they started, but so they created Amazon Marketplace. So initially Amazon just sold things that they had in their warehouse or their euphemistically titled fulfillment center. Ask, ask anyone who works there how fulfilled they feel. I don't think they're gonna get a very positive answer. But so they created Marketplace, which meant that anybody could sell. Um, so as long as you list your product, whatever it is, a book or um, photograph or anything, um, you can sell through Amazon. And then suddenly that meant that you have a, a global competition. So instead of, uh, you know, me just having my book or, you know, a couple of books on ABE at 20 pounds, suddenly things appear on Amazon. And we briefly talked about this yesterday. We've got, um, you can have on your database price matching or price undercutting software. And really essentially on Amazon, if you're not the cheapest and in good condition, forget it, you're not going to sell. It's only the cheapest copies that sell and people expect them to be in pristine condition. And so somebody can list something, a, a book, um, and it can be the first one on Amazon, the only one, someone else lists it. And if you've both got price matching software, then 
overnight or price undercutting software. So my, I list mine at 20 pounds, someone else lists theirs at 19. Mine undercuts theirs, theirs undercuts mine. And it just literally, it's a, a race to the bottom with prices. So it's meant that a lot of book dealers uh, have ended up in negative equity. They've paid more for their stock over the past 30 years than it's actually worth now. Um, but I think people are starting to come around to, to accept the idea that if you, even though you can buy a book for a penny on Amazon, you, if, you, if you want secondhand bookshops or new bookshops to remain on your high street, you, you're going to have to pay a little bit more. And the, the other thing about Amazon, I think, is that you don't have the serendipity that you get in a, a bookshop, whether, again, whether it's new or secondhand. On Amazon, you kind of have to know exactly what you're looking for. Um, whereas in a secondhand bookshop, you can go in and you can find, <clears throat> excuse me, you can find something you didn't know existed. Uh, and then you can go out and order it on Amazon. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> I saw a cartoon in, I think it was in the New Yorker a few years ago, uh, and it was a sort of cartoon of a bookshop and a sort of forlorn man standing at the counter and the sign saying, pay here, and then above the door, it's another sign saying, or go home and buy it on Amazon. Um, <laughs> so people do do it, but, it, you know, I've even seen people order a book, find a book in my shop and order it on Amazon while they're in the shop. Um, but it, I think increasingly people are, are aware that things, even the British government has at last recognized that it's a problem and that what's killing the high street is Amazon because it, it's not just bookshops, it's everything. Um, and Bezos did set out to be the everything store. I mean, that's what he, what he calls Amazon, essentially. He, he wants to take over everything. Um, and without going on too much of an Amazon rant, um, when, when he set up Amazon, whenever it was, I can't remember, 98 or 97 or something, um, the first domain name that he registered was relentless.com uh, and his his shareholders obviously had a word with him and said look Jeff it's, it's not that warm and fluffy really is it um, but if you google relentless.com it takes you straight to Amazon so, okay, we've got time for one last question if anyone would like to ask it oh yes Sean please tell us how the random book club's going it, it's going far too well unfortunately it's um so the Random Book Club was something I, I set up in the wake of the uh, 2008 financial crash. Um, and my business turnover, which had gone up by about 15% every year since I bought the shop, suddenly went back to where it had been seven years earlier. And with all the corresponding things having gone up, like wages, rates, um, everything, fuel, electricity. Uh, so I was stuck in a position where I thought, I'm going to have to do something quite radical. Uh, so I thought I'll, I came up with this idea where uh, of a book club where you pay £59 a year, so it's £5 a month roughly, um, and you get sent a book a month, but you've got absolutely no control over what you get. That's entirely down to me. Um, and it, it basically gave me a, a sort of financial crutch. I, I, because the mar profit margins are so tight, I looked at it more as a loan. Um, but since I had about 150 subscribers, which is great, it was quite manageable. But since the book came out, I'm up to about nine, eight or 900. So I now have to find 
that number of books. And obviously, it can't just be rubbish, you know, because there is quality control. I make sure things are reasonably, they've got to be in good condition and interesting. Um, unfortunately, um, because it's got so huge, the last big book collection I bought was from a house just outside Glasgow. Um, and it was a classics collection. It was a good collection. Um, but the guy was an incredibly heavy smoker. Um, and the, the books were stacked floor to ceiling, three, three deep, right the way through the house. Uh, it took me five trips in the van to clear it, but they absolutely stink. I mean, when I went into the house, the, the guys, it was a deceased estate and his sister was dealing with it. Uh, and she'd taken all the pictures off the walls and there were these neat white squares where the pictures were just kind of nicotine yellow everywhere else. So I've had a few complaints about the random books in the last, the smelling of tobacco in the last few months. So. Well, I'm sorry, folks, um, uh, we've run out of time. I'm sure we could probably spend another hour uh, with Sean. It's been fascinating, Sean. Thank, thank you for your time. As I mentioned, uh, Sean's book is for sale outside in the bookshop, and he will be available to um, sign copies for you uh, before you leave. Uh, thank you so much for coming, and please join me in thanking Sean Biddle. Thank you. Thank you.